economy is crumbling. They say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell. He went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs of Reedy Melody Baker. I see you down the dunker. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Cas Mudde. My guest today is Charlotte Lusa. Charlotte is a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Criminology and Sociology of Law at the University of Oslo in Norway. Her academic interests include politics and society in the Middle East and North Africa, and in the Arab Gulf monarchies in particular. She's currently working with the project REF-ARAB, Refugees and the Arab Middle East, Protection in States Not Party to the Refugee Convention, where she works on a sub-project on Saudi Arabia. But for her PhD project, she explored how women in Qatar and Saudi Arabia challenge patriarchal structures through playing football and the social and political significance of the sport. Today, roughly half a year before the start of the 2022 World Cup, we will talk specifically about gender politics and soccer in Qatar. Welcome to the podcast, Charlotte. Thank you so much and thank you for having me. So the first standard question is, what was the first sports team you ever supported? I was never really a sports fan growing up. I could watch the occasional football game or soccer, as you say, but I wasn't really a fan. So the first team I would consider myself a supporter of, I think, would be Liverpool Football Club, which is what my now partner has been supporting since he was very young. So after some time, it kind of just rubbed off. Very classic story, I think. Yeah, it's also pretty classic that a Norwegian would choose an English football Absolutely. team rather than a Norwegian team. Second, what is your favorite political song? My favorite political song, or perhaps my favorite song that is very political, I think I'd have to choose a song by a Swedish rap group, a Luke Troop, which is called Fort Europa. It was actually released, I think, in 2005, maybe even more relevant than ever. Yeah, I can imagine what it is about. <laughs> and so finally, what is your favorite political book? This one is a difficult one. I read a lot of political biographies of Norwegian politicians that might not be of interest to that many outside of Norway. A book that is not my favorite political book, but a book that was kind of important to me growing up that I would be very much critical of today, but that helped kind of shape the way my interest took at a young age was The Bookseller of Kabul, which is a book by a Norwegian journalist, Osna Sayesha. Pretty controversial in many aspects, but I read it when I was about 14 and it opened my eyes to the outside world, let's say, and got me interested in international topics. Moving along on that, where does your interest for the politics and societies of the MENA region and particularly the Arab Gulf monarchies come from? It's also a good question. I mean, when I was younger, I was interested in, in politics and got interested in more international politics and being young at a time where both issues related to the Palestinian case uh, and also the invasion of Iraq was very much up on the agenda. I think myself and many others growing up at the time got very interested in the Middle East and the politics of the Middle East. So I did year abroad at AUC in Cairo when I was doing my bachelor's degree. Mm -hmm. And since that, it just kind of developed. And when I got into my master's, I started to be more interested in the Gulf region, particularly because it's such an important actor in the Middle East, but also globally, but pretty understudied. So I did an internship in the Norwegian embassy in Riyadh during my master's. And from there on, it was kind of just <laughs> never looked back. Right. 
So talking about your master's, your MA thesis was on, and I quote, the 2020 World Cup in Qatar as a foreign policy tool, end of quote. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Yeah, so what I did for my master's, well, it actually started when I when I was in Cairo as well, because that was in 2010, which was the year of the World Cup bid, and the commercials for Qatar 2022 was all over. So it kind of seemed as a puzzle why this very small country wanted to be the host of the World Cup. Now, of course, we have this whole discourse about sports washing and all of this that wasn't as present during that time. So I wanted to look into the politics of sports in Qatar and see what was the motivation behind this. And my argument is that when analyzing these kind of efforts at developing sports on a very top-down level, in Qatar since the start of the 2000 and seeing this in relation to foreign policy goals at the time that the World Cup and much of the politics of sports in general is very much part of the same foreign policy strategy. Qatar is a very small country, a very small and very rich country, kind of needs to look beyond its immediate neighborhood for allies internationally and, and then use sports as a way to kind of distinguish themselves from other countries in the region and build bonds to European countries, but also other countries and actors globally. Right. Now, sports washing is, of course, not unique to the Arab Gulf monarchies, but it's particularly pronounced there. Some of the biggest clubs, soccer clubs, are largely owned by Arab Gulf monarchies from Paris Saint-Germain to Manchester City and more recently Newcastle United and possibly in the near future Chelsea. Obviously, they have a lot of money, but so do a lot of other people in other countries. What explains this particular interest in sports in general and soccer in particular? I think it's, it's a difficult question to answer very absolute. First of all, football is very popular in the Middle East region, many places, of course, but perhaps particularly in the Middle East region, or perhaps that's my bias talking, but there's a lot of individuals who are very engaged in football. And then I think we have to distinguish between individuals investing in sports team and what is the case for, in particular, PSG in Qatar and Saudi Arabia and, and Newcastle, which is the state investment which is something kind of different again. I mean, some other actors might be closely affiliated with the state, but in the case of PSG and, and the Qatari investment, it's fully state-led. And I think the reason why this might be easier for a country such as Qatar or Saudi Arabia is, of course, the wealth. But I think also the authoritarian nature of the regimes is relevant in this aspect because there's not a democratic system that kind of like approves these investments. There's not a public to be consulted in a way. So that might be one aspect that can help explain it. Another one is also, I think, in the case of, of Qatar, they were looking for something that would distinguish them from its neighbors, kind of like creating a specific Qatari brand that was very much related to sports. And other states might have seen this and thought it was a success, or at least partly so. Right. Now, talking about the public... Does sports washing also have a domestic angle? Do these countries and individuals also hope to achieve something in terms of domestic politics? I think it might have. Uh, I mean, considering the World Cup and the final will be played on the Qatari National Day, I don't, certainly don't think that's a coincidence. 
So definitely, in some aspects, there might be a domestic motivation as well, also related to health and keeping the population active and engaged in sports and physical activity more broadly. I think this is a lesser factor in the case of Qatar than many other places, because the Qatari politics of sports is so much externally oriented. It's very much focused on international events. It's very much international at its core. While considering Saudi Arabia, for instance, I think it's a wider kind of approach to investing in sports, even though it's largely state-led these recent years as well. I think hosting competitions, for example, inside Saudi Arabia would also make a lot of sense from a domestic point of view because they have a large population and many individuals in Saudi Arabia have a decent amount of money to spend on leisure. But this part of the population has for many years traveled abroad to watch sports or to watch other entertainment. And there's a very much outspoken priority or strategy from the government to convince these people to spend these money inside Saudi Arabia instead of outside. So that's one aspect that might also be explained by the domestic situation. Now, you've written an article on football fandom in Qatar, arguing that it is globalized yet local. What does that mean? This is a fun one because I think when I first went to Qatar starting to work on the topic of football, I hadn't really considered Qatari football fandom as something very present. There's an argument often that there's no football culture in Qatar, but when I started talking to people about football, I found that there was a lot of support for the local teams as well, and people had a very strong idea about the Qatari football that I didn't ask about, but often just came up in conversations. And so you have this Qatari football, which is the top-down part of Qatari football, which is the state-led investments, the World Cup, global investments, the hiring of foreign football stars. And then on the other hand, you have this very locally founded part of the Qatari football and part of the Qatari league, where people inherit the support for a club from a family, like we know from elsewhere, but also how the support for the club is often talked about in a way with linkages to not just family history, but also to tribal structures in Qatar. So you have this kind of duality where you have the support for the Qatari football clubs is very much connected to the local, very specific cultural tribal bonds. And on the other hand, you have this very global aspect of the state-led initiatives in football globally, and also the support for teams elsewhere, but also the fact that the very start of football in Qatar was related to the British oil companies and the British workers teaching football to their Qatari colleagues. Right, as in so many other countries. Exactly. There was British expats. You've already touched upon this. There is often an assumed relationship between international investments or events and domestic sports. But at the same time, I often look at the huge interest in countries like Ireland or Norway or even the US for international leagues, particularly the Premier League, holding them back. I mean, as said, it was interesting that you mentioned an English team rather than a Norwegian team. How does that work in Qatar? Has all of this investment in these international events and foreign clubs, has this helped or harmed domestic soccer? I think there's two sides to that as well. When I spoke to football supporters in Qatar and interviewed football supporters in Qatar, there would be kind of an ambivalent attitude to these developments. 
So on the one hand, you had a very support for the arrival of international stars and also events to Qatar and as part of the Qatari football. But on the other hand, there was a criticism, especially regarding the money and the financing of the club, an argument along the line of football not belonging to the supporters anymore or kind of being held captures by a political elite or a financial mm-hmm. elite, which is recognizable in, in many contexts in the world. And also you would encounter people who would say, Going to the stadium is not very much a big thing. You would often see pretty empty stadiums in Qatar, even in the big games. Some of them are more popular, but usually. And you would encounter people saying, why should I go to the stadium and be stuck in traffic and wait for so long when I can watch football at home? And especially if I can watch football of much higher quality than what I will find in Qatar. So what I found was that even if this identity and this support for the local teams was still very present, many people would prioritize watching the English Premier League or the Spanish League over watching the local teams. Right. Now, the Arab Gulf monarchies are not just known for sports washing, but also for the highly traditional or outright suppressive policies towards women. What is the official position of these countries, and particularly Qatar, on women and soccer? Well, Qatar is officially supportive of women's football, women's soccer. And in 2010, the same year that they delivered the bid for the World Cup, a women's football team was established. This team was never really a success. It wasn't active for many years. I think they're attempting to kind of bring it back to life now. So on the one hand, you had this official, very supportive attitude towards women's football. But on the other hand, they weren't really succeeding in making the structural adjustments, let's say, that would actually encourage and make it possible for women to play football and to attend. So in Qatar, for example, there's no ban on women in the stadiums like we heard about from Iran or Saudi Arabia. Yet there wasn't a lot of women at the stadiums before. This is also slightly changing just because it wasn't really socially acceptable. So so you had these kind of like structural, societal barriers on women's football that wasn't really tackled from the top, let's say. You have argued that Qatari female footballers are, and I quote again, negotiating gendered experiences, end of quote. What do you mean by this? And is this negotiating done actively or passively? In other words, are these women using soccer to challenge the regime or are they mainly interested in playing soccer and try to do so within the existing order? Well, it might be both and it might differ regarding who you talk to or from woman to woman. When I first came to Qatar and started interviewing people about playing football or women about playing football, I found that very many were in fact interested in playing football and also competitively, but that the structures that was there the national team mainly, but also some league attempts, they weren't really accommodating these women and their needs. And also the the barriers put on them from society in relation to, for example, exposure of the female body. So what I found then was that many women sought to find other ways to play football. And mainly I looked at the university league where women were able to negotiate, as I said, these barriers, for example, by attaching the teams to the university would be seen as integral part of the education. And it would be easier to justify spending time on this. They would also arrange the tournaments in a women-only environment, going around these expectations of exposure. And when I say exposure, I don't only mean like skin, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but also the female body in movement, 
kind of like right. an integrator sense as well. And I wouldn't really say that it's about being subversive towards a political establishment or a regime in that sense, but aspects of perhaps the societal expectations. So yeah. in some ways, or in some aspects, these activities can be simply just finding way for playing, while others wanted to play more competitively and wanted to also kind of like challenge these ideas about football being a male domain and would argue often that this is not only a country problem, let's say, but related to a greater international global struggle for women to be taken seriously as football supporters and players and in a football culture that is globally very male-dominated. The U.S. with the exception, perhaps, but at least yep. in, in Europe and the Middle East. Uh, absolutely. Is it fair to speak about the Arab Gulf monarchies as a homogenous unit, or are there significant differences in the way they approach sports and particularly soccer? I mean, when we're speaking about the general trend of soccer as a political tool, the Gulf monarchies definitely stands out as someone who is particularly active. But that doesn't mean that there's not internal differences. And I think this is the case both within each country, but also between countries. And take Saudi Arabia and Qatar, for instance. They have a very, very different starting point for this. So Saudi Arabia is a country of about 33 million people, uh, with about 30% being expatriates. Qatar is a country of about 3 million, with about 90% or something being expatriates. So only there you have a very, very different starting point. And then in Saudi Arabia, until very recently, you had very institutionalized patriarchal structures limiting the abilities for women to do a lot of things, including sports. So in the case of women then, for example, when you start engaging politically in sport, and by you, I mean as a regime or as a government, you have a very different starting point and a very different conditions to consider so the economic aspect, for example, is very different from Qatar and Saudi Arabia because Qatar just doesn't have that domestic potential right. as Saudi Arabia has. So you actually touched upon this pretty unique aspect of particularly the smaller Arab Gulf monarchies, which is they have an incredibly small population, but they have an even smaller so-called native population. Right? Massive parts of the residents are actually foreign with problematic rights in many cases. What you see, for example, a country like the United States is that soccer is particularly popular among part of the immigrant population, right? Particularly from Latin America. Is this the case in countries like Qatar? Is soccer at like just a basic level played predominantly or, or a lot by these immigrants? And do they mix, at least in sports? Because of course, in regular life, they're pretty segregated. Yeah, and I think that's a good question, and I hope that it's a question that will gain further research as well, because I know that there's a number of expatriate leagues in Qatar, which is interesting in itself, like why this separate structure? And definitely, I would say that until now, the political developments or the politically led developments in sport has largely not included the migrant population. And this is definitely a missed opportunity. For the clubs and also the national team, the national team might gain a little bit more support, but for the clubs to actually engage with the migrant population. So in the league, for instance, if we're talking about the elite level, 
in the league, there's even restrictions on how many foreign players you can have on each team because of this emphasis on developing local talent as a part of a, a larger aim of developing a strong national team. So you've kept these structures very separately and both as players and as supporters. You haven't really tried to engage the migrant population as supporters and as part of the local clubs. To some extent, you have targeted potential elite players from the migrant population because they're more easy to naturalize and to get accepted as players from the national teams because of the strict regulations. Right. But in generally, I would say that it's not at least not successfully integrated. Right. Now, we can't talk about the 2022 World Cup without addressing the situation of the thousands of migrant workers who have been by and large enslaved and many have died. There is and has been a lot of debate about this critique, obviously, without almost any significance. How is this addressed within Qatar? Is it openly discussed? Is it muffled away? How has this affected the whole sports washing? Because the whole idea of sports washing is that you come out better rather mm. than worse. You know, I think that's a very interesting aspect. And let me start by saying that it's now 12 years since Qatar was awarded the World Cup. And this critique and criticism has been growing for the recent year, but it has been present for many years now. And this is something that was very well known to certain neighbors when they started approaching a similar path, right? So to me, it says a lot about how at least Saudi Arabia, but probably also Qatar, is considering the cost of this as lesser than what it's gained. And to answer your actual question, I think that largely the issues of migrant workers is discussed and Qatar has engaged with international organizations and has a certain local discourse on the issue as well. There's been developments in terms of this, but the breadth of the critique is not really reflected, I would say, in the local discourse, where it's more portrayed as kind of unfair compared to neighbors that might have similar or even worse conditions. And it's portrayed as it's also kind of hypocritical, considering, for example, other clubs with sponsors and ownerships, such as Manchester City, for instance. So I think that somewhere in the translation, kind of the message is lost. So mm -hmm. at least speaking from a Norwegian perspective, where I am, where this criticism is not only about the stadium workers, but it's a broader criticism about the international order and specifically FIFA and how these events are awarded and the expectations on a general, more general human rights basis to this, which is not really, so far as I have seen, part of the discussion locally. And to a certain extent, broader, right? I mean, if you just see what FIFA does with Azerbaijan or, of course, close relations between the FIFA boss and Putin, those kind of things. And that's always helpful for countries like Qatar, who can then hide behind that and say, well, they also do it. So finally, what is the greatest misunderstanding about the role of soccer in the politics and societies of Arab Gulf monarchies in general and Qatar in particular? Mm. So while I consider that sports washing, which is now this trendy concept everyone's talking about before the World Cup, well, I think it's certainly a very useful concept, in particular for activists or for describing a general trend. Qatar is often portrayed as a prime example of sports washing. And I think I want to nuance that a bit, especially since you have other very clear examples as well as the China Olympics or the, the Russia World Cup or the Russia Olympics. 
Because the thing with Qatar is that when this strategy started and when they made their bid for the World Cup, no one really knew about Qatar. No one really talked about Qatar. So when speaking of sports washing, it's kind of implied that you have a reputation you need to wash. But the problem with Qatar during that time was they didn't really have a reputation at all. Right. So, I mean, the strategy, I would argue, of the World Cup as a foreign policy tool was not that much about washing its reputation, but getting a reputation or being recognized as a relevant actor first and foremost. And then I believe that they might not have anticipated the criticism or the level of criticism and then had to kind of adjust to that. So, But to start with, I'm not sure I think it's the best example of very pure sports washing, just because it's really more fundamental than that. Yeah, I think it's a very good point. And to a certain extent, that would then also separate Qatar, to a certain extent, the United Arab Emirates from Saudi Arabia, which does have a reputation, pretty bad one, and is using the Grand Prix and others to wash in that sense, Mm -hmm. as you have just said. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Charlotte. Thank you so much for having me. As said, Charlotte is now working more on refugees, but you can nevertheless follow her and her musings on the MENA region on Twitter at at Charlotte Lusa. Thank you for listening to Radical. The music is from the Gonads with the classic song Karl Marx supported Millwall, and I'm your host, Kas Mudde. If you liked the episode, please subscribe to Radical on your podcast platform of choice, and don't forget to rate us. Till the next time. The economy is crumbling. They say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Paul Newell. He went with Danny Baker. So you silly disco songs.